Welcome back to Zoology, a Mizzou Tigers podcast presented by Rock M Radio. I'm your host, Oscar Gamble. My co-hosts are Dan Keegan. Hey, that's me. Former Missouri football beat writer and Rock M Nation analyst David Morrison. <laughs> and uh, special guest, uh, friend of the show, Alec Bloom. Hey, thanks for having me back. Missouri completed a six-game win streak to become, I think, the first SEC team to uh, to do that and beat Arkansas 48-45 on the road. There's the whole Gary Pinkle thing where those who win in November will be remembered. Well, we have uh, a little catchphrase uh, that applies here a little bit, and it's going to apply later in the show a lot. But Missouri likes to overachieve in the most painful way possible. You know, they did a great <laughs> job closing the year, and 7-5 and five is awesome, and they rallied, and uh, I'm proud of the team. But at the same time, it's really hard not to look at that first month and think like, man, this team could have been 9-3, and three, you know? Um, but it was also good to see them win a different kind of game. They had spent the last month just kind of sitting on teams until they quit. And, uh, this was different. Like the, the opponent was up for the game. They were trying hard. There was a, a tough QB that was, uh, reliably stressing their defense that hadn't happened in um, a month. And, hmm. you know, they won a close game, a one-score game. They had to have a long game-winning drive. And that was something new from the Barry Odom team. I think we finally saw maybe the team that we'd been expecting to see all year. You know, one that had to, you know, play a high-scoring, uh, you know, shoot out game and then hope to win with uh, maybe just enough defense, even though they lost the turnover battle and really didn't play great defense except in a few key spots yeah this is the team that had to win in spite of its defense which is really what going into the season we thought was going to be the character all year instead of you know in the early season it was the team that couldn't win um at all (laughs) and then in the late (laughs) season it was the team that could you know beat the crud out of teams that were very dysfunctional but then yeah this game was i mean they waited until the 12th game of the season to do what really we thought the entire season would be which is just light people up offensively um and then have to win in spite of that defense and yeah i would say aside from marcel frazier and terry beckner i mean there wasn't like anything to like about the defense <laughs> yesterday i mean adam sparks made a nice play on the ball for that interception but he also got burnt a couple times and i mean that's that's the character of a fairly young defense um just i would say garrett had a um so had a decent game yeah he did maybe stats i don't know but yeah garrett garrett again played well when he was going forward but him and therese hall can't cover and so that that happened mm-hmm. that happened a couple times where they got burnt over top, uh, but I mean, it's a good way to end the season, um, getting up against a game opponent and actually winning a close game because they really haven't had any close games this year except for Kentucky, and that one went the other way. So, I mean, it's a it's a good way to go into bowl season on a six-game win streak and hopefully playing a team that's, uh, that's a winning team for once. <laughs> Dan, you'd mentioned that the Arkansas tested – Missouri's defense and their secondary, which they haven't been tested in a while. I'm shocked that we didn't get that out of Vanderbilt or Tennessee. Not that they're necessarily great at that, but Mizzou's secondary is so porous. I don't understand why people are even trying to run on Missouri and they're just not chucking the ball. I thought a lot of these games were going to be a lot a lot closer, maybe not as close as this, but I thought there was going to be a lot more shootouts towards the end of the season because I thought everyone was just going to be throwing the ball. There wasn't going to be a lot of running. So I was a little... Shocked we didn't get that earlier, and I guess I shouldn't have been shocked to actually see it um, out of Arkansas. 
uh, it was an entertaining, weird game, that's for sure. But I'm glad Missouri was able to pull this one pull this one out, which they wouldn't have done earlier in the year. Yeah, I tweeted this half-jokingly, but I think there was also a ring of truth to it in that, like, Missouri's badness on defense kind of suckered Arkansas into the sort of game that Missouri could win better. Because, I mean, if Arkansas had its way, it would have been getting six and seven yards a pop, moving methodically down the field and winning the time of possession battle and winning the game, like, 24 to 21. But... You know, instead of taking the check down on those play action passes, the the 60 yard home runs were just there all game. And so, you know, they score quick and Missouri could get back its offense back on the field and score quick. And, you know, they ended up uh, outplaying Arkansas 102 to 61. So, I mean, I think Mm -hmm. in a weird way, the badness of the defense kind of played into Missouri's favor um, against Arkansas. Yeah, I I think that. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate because otherwise, you know, if Arkansas plays that slow, methodical game, then Missouri feels more pressure to, well, we need to score on this play. And they, and I don't think the, I, okay, I don't want to start <laughs> dissing on Drew Locke here, but that's not his strong point, I don't think, right now is uh, under pressure. Um, I don't, and maybe not even him. I think it's just the team in general. I think it, it uh, the the need to need to do something right away that they need to the score right away. I don't think that's. Uh, I don't. Think David, to your point about Arkansas playing out of characteristically, I thought that was also enhanced by Missouri um, just crushing Allen over and over. He yeah. By the end of the game, he looked like he was moving uh, not very well. He was in a lot of pain, and Arkansas continued to drop him back so much, and, and uh, you know all the passing downs that they were forced into. Let uh, Frazier in particular and Beckner kind of tee off on him. Well, Beckner did have that dirty hit, though, remember, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so dirty. I did some research on that TJ Carpenter, right? TJ Carpenter guy. And I mean, he used to write for like some Arkansas sports blogs and, you know, he's an Arkansas alum. And so like, it's, it was the most blatant to me, Homerism. (laughs) The refs have this, have it in for, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, Beckner's a dirty player. And it's like, that was the, that was the most blatant Homerism you've seen. Do you follow Dave? Yeah. Do you follow me on Twitter? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we like to joke about the, the, this rival be, rivalry being forced upon us. But watching that game and watching the game the past, you know, last year at least, and um, the first year it was played, there was there's a lot of emotion between the players at least and the coaches. Uh, there's, uh, you know, for as many fireworks as maybe there were on the scoreboard, there was more on the field. There was that dirty hit that for some reason Arkansas was able to decline the penalty on, which was, I mean – peak idiocy i i I think i I can't even i don't even want to get into that because it was so dumb and bizarre and people will say well you know arkansas didn't do anything about it except cam hilton got like creamed on the kickoff so for as hot as missouri had been playing they kind of did that thing where they played down to the competition and arkansas almost ruined that whole hot streak turnaround narrative of barry odoms you know we talked earlier about how they didn't have anything to play for but they weren't quitting. This wasn't an example of the Florida or Tennessee where even though it was common knowledge to most that the coaches were either already fired or about to be, 
this team played like they wanted to be there and wanted to beat Missouri and had, you know, put some stake and some value in it. But I'm glad that Missouri came out on top to kind of complete the Gary Pinkle revenge tour. And and the Drew Locke revenge tour, like we were talking about last week. I mean, Drew Locke had just a miserable game in in the rain in Fayetteville two years ago. And then this year he throws for 450 yards and five touchdowns. And it's just kind of, you know, even though he had those two picks and there was a little period in the middle of the game where he wasn't setting his feet and he was throwing high and it looked like he was going to kind of come unglued, but he came back and, and played really well. So, I mean, yeah, I think it was a, a good, a sweet ending to the Drew Locke revenge tour as well as the Gary Pinkle revenge tour. And I, I think it was impressive how well and how hard Arkansas played when literally they had the press release of their coaches firing ready to go <laughs> immediately after the game. Yeah. Well, was it like, oh, I don't know, show some fight against Missouri and maybe uh, we can bring you back. It was like, nope, like we're just – we. Just had to hit print. We've already printed 500 of these. You know, we're not, you know, we're not taking this back, right? <laughs> Which, like, I've seen I've seen people on Twitter kind of, like, crowing about, you know, oh, another scout for Barry Odom or, oh, the Grim Reaper or stuff like that. But, I mean, conversely, like, that's not a good sign if the teams that you're beating immediately fire their coaches because that means they're a mess. Like, it doesn't mean you're going up against healthy, solid teams. It means you're going up against teams that are teetering on the abyss. So I don't know how people can, like, be proud of Odom getting coaches fired but also be like, oh, no, we the easy schedule isn't why we're winning all these games. It's just kind of, again, cognitive. It's also a little insulting for teams to lose to Missouri and then immediately fire the coach. Like, that is beyond the pale. We don't lose to Missouri. The thing I saw after the Arkansas game was people starting to raise questions about whether Derek Mason should be fired, as if, like, Missouri fans weren't satisfied with three out of four of the coaches being fired. They wanted all of them to be fired. Yeah, Paul Petrino. Randy Edsel, you're out. (laughs) Like, hey, Steckle, get out. (laughs) Maybe the underlying... Uh, fan thought was that that these you know Missouri's playing a bunch of bad teams and that these this isn't sustainable because you know as we we talked about a little bit in a, an earlier episode there's been talk about does Barry Odom deserve an extension and I think that some fans are kind of uh, maybe thinking that this is some fool's gold where Missouri isn't going to continue to have a this run of success against these blue blood teams, right? You know, they beat Tennessee and Florida and, and Arkansas isn't necessarily blue blood, but you know, like these name brand teams. And if Missouri does extend Odom, it's going to be, well, yeah, but those teams were bad, you know, but Missouri has a winning record against Florida, Arkansas, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, the only teams they don't have winning records are against are the ones that they lost to this year. What did you make of that? Do you think Odom deserves an extension? And what do you make? Uh, I know David, you wrote a little bit about the schedule and how it played out at the yeah, end. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I really don't think he deserves an extension because so far he's done a job he's been hired to do. I mean, he stabilized things one year, he got them better the next year, and then in 2018, if they're winning nine or ten games, then you extend him. And I mean, I, I know that people have argued that oh, well, he he has to have at least four years left on the contract because that means stability for recruiting. But I don't that. Argument holds absolutely no sway with me, um, so I don't really subscribe to that. Um, and I don't. I truthfully, if you take this year's work as a whole, I don't think it's extension worthy. I mean, if you take the last six weeks, then it's definitely extension worthy because they went six and nothing. But I don't. 
And this is when I see people talk about Barry Odom as a dark horse SEC coach of the year. I don't see how you can, I don't see how you can just totally ignore the dumpster fire that this team was right. for the first six weeks of the season. And just all of a sudden, be like, extend him, coach of the year, coach of the century. And so I just, <laughs> I think he did a good job this year. I think he'll, the team will be better next year, and then we can talk about extension if they are living up to their expectations next year. Yeah, this needs to play into next year. This needs to continue. And yeah, it's like you said, There's this season as a whole was not good. It was okay because of the second half, but I mean, there's there was as many... I mean, it was some of the worst football I've seen in quite a while at the beginning of this season, and then it was some um, very exciting offense uh, at the end of the season, I would say. But yeah, next year we have to actually see, um, do we find out if Barry Odom is just uh, a slow starter, which isn't good. You can't really have that in football. You can have that in basketball. You can have that in baseball. You can't have that in football. Um, And maybe it's not slow starts. Maybe there's bad stretches. Um, Maybe maybe that was an anomaly this year. And it's there won't be as bad of stretches as uh, we saw the the start off the season. But yeah, we we have to see this continue to uh, progress through next year. And then before you talk about any kind of extension. Mm -hmm. To me, the biggest on-field performance was different in the second half uh, outside of Drew Locke's incredible, incredible hot streak was the running game and the uh, offensive line uh, coached up by Glenn Allerby and those guys, a couple younger guys stepping forward and really just opening up really big holes in the running game against SEC opponents. Uh, That's the thing that if that's stable and the same and continues to develop next year can lead to a great year and then uh, eventually Mm -hmm. a Barry Odom extension. Um, because over the first half of the year, that just wasn't there. And the passing game suffered and, you know, the time of possession suffered and, and all those things suffered. So uh, to me, that's the biggest uh, step forward that they can continue to make next year. And also, in addition, just like general program coaching staff stability. Uh, don't forget, this is a team that fired their mm-hmm. defensive coordinator after week two. That's unheard of. You know, I don't think you extend a head man who – goes into a season and fires a defensive coordinator after two weeks. If you're going to extend somebody, extend Glenn Ellerby and Joe John Finley yes. because they they have been – their guys have been playing superbly for like two straight seasons basically. And, I mean, I guess the tight ends weren't all that special last year, but you could see you could see um, potential. And then this year, Albert Okoye-Bunam has just been out of this world. Like I would even – I know everybody loves Hayden Hurst at South Carolina, but I would even venture to say he could get like first-team all-SEC consideration. <laughs> I think he will. Are we giving too much credit to the tight ends coach for how good Albert O is? Yeah, probably. Yeah. But that's all right. We Everybody gave, everybody gave Bruce Walker credit when Chase Kaufman was really good too, so uh, we can right. we can continue that streak. I heard he taught him the hurdle though. I saw Chiefs fans on Twitter being like, oh, Alberto reminds me of Travis Kelsey. And I'm like, man, am I that old that the Chiefs go-to reference for a great tight end is Travis Kelsey? Uh, I'm getting old. (laughs) Not Tony Gonzalez? (laughs) Dan, you were talking about um, the the turnaround of the run game, which I thought was – was interesting because, you know, we haven't even mentioned Ish Witter's just standout performance, not just versus Arkansas, where he – single-handedly outrushed Arkansas, you know, the the team that wants to pride itself as a running team. You know, he had 170 yards and Arkansas as a team had 133. We call that the Tony Temple. <laughs> yeah, he had 39 on 39 carries, he had a touchdown and that was his third straight game of uh over 100 yards and he's 8 yards away from breaking 1000 yards on the season. I don't think anybody would have predicted that 
given the you know kind of the start and the the narrative around his abilities uh coming into this year at least and he had the game that that basically uh sealed the game that big run uh down the middle of the field that got them Mm -hmm. like well into field goal range um into safe field goal range i've always felt really badly for ish during his missouri career because i feel like I feel like fans like gave him undue hate just because he was thrown into a role that he wasn't ready for at the time. You know, in 2015, on like the worst offense in the history of the program, he had to become a feature back because Russell Hansborough was hurt. I mean, he wasn't very good because the line wasn't very good. And I feel like from that point, everyone's like, any time a new running back came in, they were like, "Oh, thank God, we can put Ish Witter on the bench now." But I don't think, I don't think he was ever that bad. I, don't, I think it was out of his control. And so, I mean, I feel like senior year has been a nice kind of, I don't know, how you like me now tour for Ish Witter, kind of because he's been good and he's been a feature back. And he's been good as a feature back. And, I mean, even I have have been saying his most utilities as a third down back, and I don't think he could ever be a feature back. But he's shown he can run 40 times a game and take the kind of huge-ish witter hits that he's been taking for four years <laughs> and still come back from it. So, I mean, I think it's been a nice piece of just redemption for him after – it seemed like everybody kind of turned off of him after 2015. Yeah, everyone got real excited about Demaria Crockett and then Larry Roundtree. Uh, but it's been Ish Witter the whole time. It was always you, Ish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think um, – well, let's be kind of uh, fair here. That Yeah, the offensive line was really bad back then. But he wasn't ready to no. play just in general. He wasn't physically ready. I mean, he – couldn't break a tackle because if you swiped his ankle he fell down i mean it's and i'm not trying to it's no offense to him he just wasn't physically ready like a lot of high school or kids coming out of high school just aren't quite ready it takes him a couple of years and it kind of reminded me of tucker mccann last year not that he wasn't physically ready to play d1 football i don't think he was mentally ready to play but hmm. he had to be our kicker last year and he struggled mightily he got lots of crap and he's redeemed himself this year. And we, we know he's redeemed himself because we don't talk about him, which is what happens with kickers, and that's good. <laughs> but it just reminds me of the same thing. I mean, fans just have to realize sometimes it's just it's just a numbers game, and sometimes you got to plug in a player who is not ready to play, and you have to just watch him eat it for an entire season or so. I think so, Tucker McCann's a good one to bring up because Oscar, I think I saw like when he was lining up for that 19-yard field goal to win it, last night some like the, just the narrative that takes people's minds somebody was like oh no tucker mccann on for a game-winning field goal and you were like dude he's been good like I don't, like he's made 14 out of 16 yeah. field goals this year so if he, even even though he's put in an entire years of evidence that he's over the yips that he had last year people were still like oh god he had like one missed kick because it was blocked and then i think that's i don't i don't remember anything else standing out he had at the the first game of the year he kicked the the kickoff his first kickoff of yeah. the year went out of bounds right right and then he missed an extra point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like everyone's like, oh, here we go again. And then he's been good since. Oh, he's been. We yeah. called that one. There were a couple of things in that game yesterday that I was like, oh, Zoology called that. We called that. In the preseason episode with Bill, we called McCann as a bounce back player. Uh, we called Adam Sparks. And of course, David, uh, you called Albert O. Yeah. So we're on, on a nice little hot streak here to ourselves. I just I get this I get this sense that Alberto hasn't been reading his press during the entire season, and then after the bowl, he's gonna go back and see me just like weirdly <laughs> tweeting about him all year, be like, "Oh my god, who is this guy? I need to watch out for him." But no, no, Albert, I like what you're doing out there, man. Nothing weird. Nothing weird. 
Just enjoying what you do. Huh, I'm, I'm getting some Photoshop <laughs> ideas here. <laughs> the movie stuck together with a uh, Matt Damon and Oscar. Can we? We mentioned the end of game. Can we talk about that real quick? What the hell was going on at the end of the game? I, I'm so confused of how that played out. Well, the uh, the the Ber- the Brett Bielema like weird timeout, and then the Barry Odom weird timeout, or well, all of it. I mean, the, well, Odom. I'm not sure exactly what. Th- I don't know why we had to score a touchdown. They didn't have any timeouts left. Why were we leaving time on the clock? It was fourth down. Why did we leave six seconds on the clock? I, I don't. I was so confused of I, all of that. I, you know, if you want my honest answer, I think coaches. Um, you know, there's a lot going on. And sometimes you, if you're the only one making the call, or if you're the guy who's here where you don't have maybe a a timeout coach or something like that, you, you know, you just, you you react in the way that you think you're, you know, uh, I thought we had less time or I thought we had more time. Um, Brett Bielma should, should have much more experience (laughs) with this, right? You know, he's been a head coach for a while. You know, that was the, the bizarre thing to me was why did Brett Bielma call that, you know, timeout? If you accept a hold within two minutes, the clock stops before the next down. So if he, he declined that holding penalty and called a timeout where he could have just accepted the holding penalty, knocked them back 10 yards, and still gotten the same effect, gotten a timeout back. So I, that one made, that one almost made me think like he was checking with the refs and the refs didn't know the rule almost or something like that because I just don't see any conceivable way why. And it was... It was made even more ridic- patently ridiculous by the fact that literally the very next play, Jamon Moore holds, he accepts it, and the clock stops coming out of the hole. Like, oh, you just could have done this on the last play, and you'd have, like, a timeout and 15 extra seconds to play. Yeah, that was very confusing. <laughs> so to make it easier for coaches, since it's, you know, as you said, it can be very stressful at the end of game, should they be allowed, like, one, like, phone a friend or, like, tweet a friend? Since, like, we all, like, we're all watching the game. We all know what they should do. So, like, should they tweet at us on what to do? Should that be allowed? He's got somebody in the press box who's just, like, reading Twitter. You know, like, oh, what should I do here? Taking a poll. He puts out a little poll. Sits the time delay is, like, one hour or something like that. You Throw, know? Throws his pho- phone a flag. <laughs> just call Barry Alvarez and see what's going on. Yeah, I don't, I don't really understand it. My my working theory is that uh, that Odom has some dirt on Bielema. That's how he got uh, Arkansas to play so badly last year in the second half, and that's how he got him to to screw up the end of this game. Um, or maybe it was just that Bielema was like, you know what? I do know that uh, I'm going to get fired after this game, so why not give him <laughs> this win? And we got to talk about Drew Locke. 43 touchdowns, broke Chase Daniels' uh, 2008 record for passing touchdowns in a year, as well as Andre Woodson's. Um, He's had eight straight games with three-plus passing touchdowns. His 12th career game with five-plus completions of greater than 20 yards, which I thought was impressive. That breaks Chase Daniels' record of 11. There's been a lot of speculation about whether he'll stay. Uh, We've talked about that. But if he does declare for the NFL after, you know, maybe the bowl game or later, uh, closer to, to the draft, where do you think he ranks among Mizzou QBs? I don't know. I, th- I think I'd have to put him behind Chase Daniel um, because, I mean, stats-wise, he's breaking all his records, yes. Um, but on-field success-wise, I mean, Chase Daniel had him ranked number one for a week, uh, you know, had him... Uh, top five team um and while i don't think you know i'm not kind of uh submitting to the theory of quarterback win losses like maddie mock going 24 and 5 a really good quarterback (laughs) but i do think that the quarterback bears some responsibility for 
the on-field success of the team. And with Drew, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a dumping on Drew Locke session, but I mean, he he's played, he's thrown a buttload of touchdowns more than anybody in the history of the SEC. But he has in two years, three years, he hasn't really like beaten anyone. Real like he hasn't he hasn't played that great against great defenses. I think the Georgia game this year was probably the first time that he's really shown out against a really good defense. Um, and I mean, what's his signature win? His signature win is probably Arkansas yeah. last year. I mean, I think that's probably the only bowl team he's beaten, or I guess they beat Vanderbilt last year too. So I would I would rank him behind Chase Daniel, but I mean, just by sheer magnitude of numbers that he's put up and really from the arc that his career has taken from just like down and out as a true freshman to record setter as a junior I mean that's impressive too um so I'd probably rank him second I would think I mean I don't I I think people might like Brad Smith or Corby Jones in that in that spot but I feel like Drew Locke just by sheer magnitude of numbers uh deserves to be kind of in that spot behind Chase Daniel I would still take Brad Smith over over Locke. So to me, Locke was probably three. I came to the school in – so I'm admittedly biased. I came to school in 2002, uh, Brad Smith's freshman year, so kind of, um, you know, right there at the same starting point. I can't speak to Corby Jones or anybody, you know, pre-2002. Um, well, except Kirk Farmer. <laughs> I mean, maybe he'd be number three and then, and then Locke of four. Uh, no. um, but um, – this is a, a different tangent, but to me, Brad Smith is the reason we're in this point. Like everything yeah. comes from Brad Smith. Yeah, he gets the um, lifetime achievement award. <laughs> yeah, and the 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 program around you know he kind of was like Porter, Michael Porter was to to football, and that when you know when I arrived on campus, that just nobody cared about Missouri football, and it was just totally yeah. dumps. And uh, they you know. Uh, nine out of ten of the top ten recruits in the state were leaving. They were going to Nebraska. They were going to Illinois. They were going to Notre Dame. They weren't staying in Missouri. And uh, like guys like Tony Temple, that would like a player of that caliber out of Kansas City is unheard of that he was going to be coming to Missouri. But Brad Smith put him on the map. He made him energize. Um, of course, he. I'm Gary Pinkle too, uh, but together. So, um, so I still would take Brad Smith too. He set all the records that Chase Daniel broke. Um, and then lock three, probably. Honestly, you know, a guy that we love to pick on, Blaine Gabbert, did have a really, really nice career. There are a lot of flaws in his performance, but he upset Oklahoma. Um, he, you know, compiled some great stats. He was a, you know, top 10 NFL pick. Yeah, he had he had better wins than Locke has so far, too. So, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four. Three A for Locke. <laughs> three three A. Well, you guys know I'm a, I'm a huge Burke stressor. Uh, <laughs> barely missed my list here you know I, i've got chase daniel number one for all the reasons that you guys said i mean the, just the success on the field 2007 i mean it's just I, I don't know how i put anyone on top of him um any quarterback or any quarterback ahead of him right now i just don't um and along the same lines as what dan was saying about brad smith that's why i've got brad number two i mean just like i said that that very similar that Michael Porter effect is kind of a, a, a school changing um, player, you know, just kind of changed the fortunes for a, a 
Missouri football. And I got to put Drew Locke at three. I mean, he could move up to, to two or one if he stays mm-hmm. another year. And that's not saying he has to, but it's very possible. I mean, as of right now, I don't think there's any way I can put ahead of Chase and, and Brad Smith right now. Yeah, the reason I thought this question was interesting was because a lot of the things that we use to, uh, you know, talk about quarterbacks are pretty nebulous. Do we talk about team wins? Do we talk about stats? Do we talk about moments? Because, or do we talk about significance, right? So like, I think Missouri has one of each of those. And some of those guys kind of hit a couple of the buttons, like Brad Smith brought the program back to relevance. Uh, Chase Daniel, he not only had impressive stats, but he put Missouri at number one in the nation. You know, Blaine Gabbert, he was the prototypical, you know, NFL kind of guy. He had big wins like against Oklahoma. He put up impressive stats. We're not even talking about James Franklin, who took Missouri to, you know, uh, SEC championship game. You know, we don't use the same measure of wins when we're talking about Matty Mock. We kind of hold it against him because they were like, well, that was the team around him, right? Well, Chase Daniel had a really talented team around him. So we're not really playing by the same rules when we talk about quarterbacks. It's really kind of subjective, which all top 10 lists are. But I think the biggest thing that maybe I take out of this is that Drew is, you know, maybe in your top three. But if he comes back for a senior year, he has a real opportunity to not only uh, get signature wins, but have an important significance uh, because he was part of kind of rebuilding the program after 2015. You know, he's a true son, so he has that kind of built-in fan appreciation. He has big stats, you know. He, he has a chance to kind of consolidate all of these things that we talk about when we talk about our top quarterbacks. But I think that would take him coming back, you know, senior year. And this isn't really a, like, I think he should, but I do. I do think he should, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've covered this ground. This is well-tried ground. Did you know that Drew yeah. Locke's father and grandfather went to Missouri? I thought you were going to say played basketball. <laughs> played basketball. <laughs> <laughs> if if Drew comes back and wins a Heisman next year, is he the all-time yes. greatest Missouri yeah. quarterback? I think so. I mean, Daniel's the only but, one to ever go to New York. You know, yeah, right. But if I right. think, I think if he wins a Heisman, it means that they're really good on the field. Yes, <laughs> they beat Alabama. They've won SEC championship game because that's what it would take for the national media to like really pay that much attention. I don't know. They're paying attention now. Yeah, not as much as in in like in the way that it's like kind of an oddity, not like holy crap. Like, hey, look at this good player, you know, playing well at uh, you know, that's oh, pretty cute. I think a lot of fans want Drew to come back because they want him to prove that he isn't just a product of maybe inflated stat padding, you know, a a system quarterback, you know, because he doesn't have maybe signature wins or, you know, this, uh, this uh, moment that he can point to. He led a game winning drive this week. That was the first time he had done that. That's pretty, there's no real way to prove that he's not a product of a system. But I think that's the fans perspective. You know, the typical fan is is looking at it. Right. Right. I I don't really understand the, the whole, man, we saw it so much (laughs) yesterday of the, this, is why he needs to come back next season. Like I, I'm sorry, I got real. I'm sorry if you guys tweeted any of that stuff. I got really tired of that because it was like every mistake they were just using. See, see, that's why he needs to come back. I'm like, come on, guys. Like no quarterback going pro is perfect. Not even Andrew Luck. He made a lot of mistakes. Well, I've only, not as I've players. only tweeted it once, and I mean, and I take great offense to you. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But um, <laughs> but I. Okay. I feel like, yeah, yeah. People who tweet that after every single mistake he makes are doing going a bit overboard. But the one time that I've tweeted it, I felt like it's kind of emblematic for me for why he does need to come back is he still doesn't read defenses. Like 
Yeah. No. I mean, like, he's got, he's very, he's got a ridiculous arm. Like, nobody's disputing that. I mean, his arm is just unparalleled. He can put it 65 yards through the air in Emmanuel Har- uh, Hall's waiting arms. I mean, that's just spectacular. But, but it, isn't that just because that's the offense they run? Like, he gets all the plays from the sideline. You, I mean, that's not going to change next year if he comes yeah, back, but, right? I mean, he's going to be told what to run. And it, yeah, I, I kind of see what you're saying, but he's, I guess I don't see any reason to think that he's going to get the kind of experience needed to fix all these problems that people. I mean, I feel like from the last year to this year, he's been asked to do a little bit more. And then from this year into next year, he could be asked to do a little bit more. And if he cuts down on these, he seems to just have no idea where the safety is at any given time. (laughs) I feel like if he, if he cuts down on those throws in which he just like kind of zips it straight to, awaiting center field safety on a play that he hasn't really thought through before throwing it, then may, then his stat or draft stock will be even higher. I mean, that's, that's the area of the game he needs to improve. And also these 10 for 25 games that he still has, I mean, he's still very yeah. inefficient, which is weird to say because he's like one of the top five quarterbacks in passer rating, uh, passer efficiency, but that's all because every other throw he does is a touchdown. So, I mean, I, I feel like he's got areas that if, he can improve, and if he's able to improve, he'd be a much more attractive draft prospect than he is right now even. It's strange how the passing game is so productive and so explosive, but it often doesn't feel like they're in sync. Yeah. Especially Jonathan Johnson. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, Alec, because I loved your tweet where it was like, Drew and Jonathan Johnson aren't on the same page. Well, there's a 101st time for <laughs> everything. I do feel like the majority of either um, incomplete passes over the middle or interceptions are on those either to Jonathan Johnson or just over the middle plays where Drew, you know, he's having to make a, you know, a read on whether they're, they're going deep or they're cutting off their route. And he, he, you know, somebody makes the wrong decision. We're not really sure. And Drew trusts his arm so much that he's going to put it up Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's going to try to fit something in the window. I think I side a little bit with David where if he comes back and he can kind of get another year where he can we already know he can make that that throw to Jamon Moore right in the back corner of the end zone we already know he can make the tight uh out route can he do the thing where he reads the defense and looks off you know the safety and fits the pass in that's I think the takeaway that he might get from having a senior year here we also know he can hit Albert Okwebanam when nobody's within 15 oh, yards yeah. of him in the end zone well my favorite I think my favorite pass yesterday was there was a play where like they did the RPO and Jamon ran a hitch and Drew like pump faked at him like three times like go along go along and Jamon was like nope and so and then he just like threw it to him for the six yard I mean if you're the quarterback you've got to like be able to read what your receiver is doing and know that you know if he's just standing there staring back at you just throw the ball to him don't be like hey come on go Go, guys. Go, boys. Go. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to you know, get rid of it. Some, just because you want something to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. So, I mean, I don't I feel like there's still a little maturation there. But, I mean, he could just as easily do that in the NFL. I just don't think he should. <laughs> well, I, I think next year, though, I to, for him to improve on those things you're talking about, I think his receivers need to help him along the way, too, to help uh, help him progress as well because a all the drops and all and yes we mentioned jonathan johnson and guess what i'm going to mention him again it, okay yesterday in the game jonathan johnson always seems to find himself yeah. next to another receiver <laughs> like why there's no way you guys are running into the same spot 
And that's why that one ball almost got intercepted. I don't remember what deep ball he was throwing to. It may have been Jamon, but uh, a safety like knocked it down with his left hand. Well, that safety was shadowing Jonathan Johnson. It shouldn't have been over there in the first place, I don't think. But um, but really, the, the receivers need to help. Um, I mean, th- those completion numbers aren't going to improve if the wide receivers yeah. are still dropping balls. Well, I mean, sp- since we're talking about receivers, I think we should also give credit to Jamon Moore for having... Never! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's taboo. No, he broke a 1,000 yards receiving. Uh, I didn't really expect that, but um, he had 160 yards. He had that crucial uh, game-tying touchdown at the very end there. It was That was a really impressive, no matter what you might say about whether he pushed off or not. That he was, did. That was a really <laughs> impressive catch. Uh, he uh, becomes, uh, I think it's the fourth leading receiver in school history, passing Macklin. And he also became just the second Missouri wide receiver since Jeremy Macklin to have uh, back-to-back 1,000-yard receiving seasons. I think that was kind of a quintessential game from Jamon, where explosive, uh, big numbers, also mm-hmm. boneheaded mistakes, right? Like the the holding on Drew Locke's uh, very, uh, uh, that uh, touchdown that was called back towards the very end, you know, the substitution penalty. Um, but I still feel like that was the quintessential uh, uh, Jamon Moore game. Yeah, quintessential because the most of the fans who watched it are probably going to harp more on one first down catch he missed than the touchdown pass he had later in the game. Yep. Um, I don't know. You you guys know my thoughts on Jamon Moore. He's been criminally underrated for his entire <laughs> Missouri career. Yeah, he has problems with drops, but so do other receivers. And this year especially, his drops haven't been any worse than, say, Emmanuel Hall's have. Um, and I feel like, at least in the game yesterday, the... 24 or the touchdown catch he had made up for at least like two of those drops because like you said it was like first off he got away with offensive pass interference which is which is a skill unto itself being crafty enough to push off and get away with it and then i think that's the michael irvin right yeah. for you and then he made a ridiculous catch in the corner of the end zone so i mean i feel like you can forgive some forgive him dropping a third and six hitch for seven yards if he's going to catch a touchdown like that. I don't know. He also came up big when Missouri needed him most because Emmanuel Hall was out in the second half. Emmanuel Hall, all he does is catch bombs. Uh, Two 50-yard touchdown catches and then was out in the second half. And Missouri, they were basically... You know, relying on on Jamon Moore to be their deep threat guy, and he came through when he, they needed him. Hey guys, does Emmanuel Hall transfer next year? If you <laughs> luck, you mean does he um, transfer to the NFL? Because <laughs> he's not going to get the ball, is he? If, if Michael Wilson is at quarterback, he's not getting the ball because <laughs> Mike is just going to carry it, or you know, he's just going to run with it. <laughs> well, he's just going to run it. He can't. He's not going to throw it deep. <laughs> and I don't know if Emmanuel Hall the past few games he's not the most reliable going across the middle. It may not be his game. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe he goes pro too. As much as uh, another thing, uh, as much as we've criticized uh, Jonathan Johnson's, he made the catch of the game. Oh, he did have that one key catch on the, the, the yeah yeah. He basically, I mean, that was his only five targets, one catch, the most important one of that. You know, uh, uh, in, at the very end there to extend that five minute drive. And it was right? a tough catch too. A little guy yeah. going way up, climbing the ladder across the middle. That is not mm-hmm. an easy catch. And it's not the first time he's done that either. I, I'm trying to remember what game a while back where he jumped way up. Like he <laughs> locked through him a jump ball for some reason, like he was Jamal <laughs> yeah. Moore. I mean, if, and if I was a Missouri fan, which I think uh, my Twitter presence has established that I'm, I'm not, um, I would, <laughs> I would take, I would, 
I would take six drops for three really good catches. Like, I would take that any day of the week. I would take six easy drops for catches like Jamon Moore's touchdown, Jonathan Johnson's one in traffic, and then Albert O spearfishing two of those. You know, one of those on the, the touchdown in the corner of the end zone, and one of those on that. I think it was like a third and four, and it was a little rollout pass for 11 yards that drew through like five yards. And he was just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like suction the ball to his hands. So, I mean, I would take that over drops any day I, I would i would have those cancel out in the wash um but then again i'm not a missouri fan so well i think that goes back to the whole missouri fans prefer the chase daniel like uh efficiency versus the drew like uh mm. drew lock like explosiveness they would like a guy who who's like denario alexander who catches everything and has 1700 yards versus a guy like Jamon, who might be hit more hit or miss. That was a really unique time of college football, and especially for a team in the Big 12. Like, those 42 out of 47 passing performances, like, those aren't coming back. Like, teams don't let yeah. teams do that anymore. You know, the way that mm-hmm. the defenses and offenses have evolved over the last decade. Like, those um, – I mean, yeah, there are definitely opportunities for more efficiency in the passing game, but those, like – ridiculous you know 75 80 percent uh, completion lines that that daniel used to put up though so that's not happening again hey one more thing and this will go to uh david's uh love of the tight end is there i was i was watching the game with family and there was a conversation about whether whether albert Okuebuam, <laughs> nope i messed it up is has, has is the heir apparent to the chase kaufman missouri tight end there was a there was a conversation about well i think all his catches are just really when he's wide open and then it was like right then he had that one in the corner of the end zone that second one where it was like that was a tough catch he was falling down and he, and he i think you david you described it as spear fishing it um that was impressive and that and he broke uh, Jeremy Macklin, another Macklin record fell where he had, you know, 11th touchdown catch and um, leads all tight ends in the nation. So another good guy that Missouri can rely on in the red zone, which I think really helped Missouri's red zone issues. They went five for five. There was a play where uh, uh, Alberto caught the ball um, kind of heading toward the sidelines. Not the big third down conversion that you mentioned earlier, David, a different one. And he was kind of turning up field and running toward the sidelines. And I thought he was going to do the Chase Kaufman hurdle. But he, he just kind of <laughs> ran through this, the guy. I mean, this oh. might be blasphemy, but I feel like he can be more than Kaufman and Rucker because they yes. they were basically big glorified wide receivers, whereas what Josh Heupel is asking his tight ends to do in this offense is get into the backfield and be the lead blocker in the run game too. And so not only is he leading the team right. in receiving touchdowns, but he is a key component to their running success. He's the one who's sealing outside of the of the holes that the running backs are going through so i mean he he might not ever put up the receiving numbers that kaufman and rucker did but he could be just as valuable if not more valuable to offensive health that was always the big issue for missouri tight ends when when they went to the pros was that they couldn't block in the run game Uh, that's why rucker and kaufman didn't you know really stick around too long but i think we're seeing albert O. Uh, kind of prove that he can be that guy and that's pretty impressive i agree especially for a guy also he's a redshirt freshman yeah especially for a guy who's a redshirt freshman i feel like we got to record a little episode here of talking about beckner do we have a theme song for that yet let's get one faces batting balls talking about some beckner it's not an 80s sitcom Uh, yeah, he was great. He ate some faces. He uh, he got called for a penalty that was not a penalty. He 
a lot of pressure up the he middle. Also didn't get called for a face max. That was a penalty. Oh yeah, so that was made... good. That bounced out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had a he had a great game. Uh, ended his Tiger regular season career in a pretty dominant fashion, and hopefully he can. Do the same in the I think we can all agree that he's gone, right? Like he's he's going to be gone, right? Like there's. He hasn't put much thought in guys. He just wants to finish the season with his brother. Okay. <laughs> I was a little surprised at how little CBS kind of talked him up as like they didn't really talk about him as a like an NFL pick. Well, they were talking about Marcel Frazier, right. who who deservedly was having also a pretty standout game, more statistically at least. Dan, that dirty penalty though, that's I, I saw that. I'm like, this this is why Terry Beckner Jr. needs to come back to college. I'm like, this, this <laughs> uh that's been an episode of talking about Beckner. Thank you everyone for listening. Eating faces, getting called for penalties. <laughs> Talking about some Beckner. Talking about Beckner. <laughs> Gentlemen, it is now time for the lightning round. Yes, the first ever zoology podcast lightning round. Uh, let's start off. We'll start off with basketball first because we're going to talk about that here shortly. You guys can just spit out your answers whenever you want. We're not necessarily going to go in any order here. All right, you ready? No. Yeah, absolutely not. First one, over under, 19.5 wins for Mizzou men's basketball. Over. Over. Under. Ooh. <gasps> God, such a David Morrison answer right there. What do you mean? That was Oscar. No, no, I know. You gave a David Morrison answer. That's what I was saying. I don't want to sully his reputation. You know, he already hates Missouri sports as it is. You know? yeah, it's already sullied sure. as it is. Uh, number two, will Mizzou beat West Virginia Sunday night in the AdvoCare Something something tournament. <laughs> no. no. Jeremiah Tillman single-handedly beats West Virginia. Sure. So, yes. Number three. Fact. Missouri is now a rebounding school. Question. <laughs> who is Missouri's all-time leading rebounder? Uh, Stepanovich. Yeah, I was going to Steve Stepanovich. No. Aw. AJ. Yeah, Arthur Johnson. No, that's what I was going to say first. 1,083. Good for you, AJ. Doug Smith came in second in a 1,053. Oh, that was the first name that crossed my mind. All right, number four. How many rebounds does junior and crowd favorite Adam Wolf need to break that rebounding record? <laughs> 1,080. <laughs> yeah, you just told us the answer, right? You're, you're close. You're close. 1,081. Does he have negative rebounds? Like, <laughs> no, There's some stats there. One. I'm going $1. I don't know. He's probably got like what three, four rebounds. So 1,078. He has 11 rebounds. Wow. So 1,073 oh will break the record. So good luck. Fuck off. Him. When does he get 11 rebounds? <laughs> <laughs> right, granted, I didn't watch any Missouri. You're not watching closely. <laughs> you didn't watch the Utah game. <laughs> so I, know, I guess. Uh, number five. Last basketball question. Which basketball movie has won an Oscar? That's the, the, the movie awards. Who's yours? Hmm. Basketball movie won an Oscar. Um, Hoosiers? Blue Chip. I wish Blue Basketball Chip. Basketball Diaries. Or no, 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 no. Hoop Dreams. Hoop Dreams. Ooh. We've all given like three answers here, by <laughs> yeah, the way. Yeah, they're all wrong. That's a trick question. No, no basketball movie. Do you want a man? Air Bud. Eddie. Do you want a man? Do you want a man? was sensational. <laughs> so was Love and Basketball. Uh, all right, so let's move on to the football questions. First one. Does... David Morrison, hate the University of Missouri. Hell yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that is correct. Good job, guys. 
<laughs> Number two, Barry Odom. What will his greatest season at Mizzou entail? So just kind of like the highlights. What do you think? Like wins, top five finish, whatever you think. What what, what will his best season? Like, like the ceiling? Be? Yeah. Uh, same as Pinkle. SEC championship loss. Uh, good bowl win. Top five-ish. Yeah, I would say an upset of a blue blood team, you know, a ranked blue blood team in the season, and then SEC championship, you know, appearance. Eleven and three, number eight final ranking. A little too specific <laughs> for my taste, but all right, good answer. Settle down, uh, now, David. <laughs> no, number three, who will be Missouri's defensive coordinator in 2018? Barry Odom. <laughs> Who's their head coach? <laughs> Red Bielema. (laughs) I would love that. You have no idea. Um, Is Butch Jones a defensive guy? Keep that guy away from... (laughs) Ryan Walters. If I were... Yeah, I think it's probably Ryan Walters versus the field, but I Mm. kind of think that Ryan Walters being the guy in charge of the secondary maybe isn't the guy that you want to promote. But I feel like that's going to be who they promote. I don't know. I'm I'm really lost on this one. So I'll say Ryan Walters. I think he'll keep it internal. So uh, number four, Drew Locke now holds the record for most single season touchdown passes in Mizzou and SEC history, as mentioned earlier on this podcast. Which MU player holds the record for most career penalties in school history? <laughs> oh God, oh, this is good. That's a good question. Taylor Chapel. Um, oh God. James Kinney. Justin Smith. Well, I hope one of those answers is right, because I never actually looked it up, guys. I was, hoping one, I, was, I was hoping one of you actually knew the answer for that one, so I have no idea. All right, final one. What is the greatest football movie of all time? Any given Sunday. <laughs> Necessary roughness. I don't know, because I only watch movies with big lizards in them, like Godzilla. That is a good one. And something with lizards. Uh, it, all, it all works. The, the answer is anything but the blind side, so. Little giant. <laughs> anything but Rudy, maybe. Ugh. I would watch a big lizard football movie. <laughs> What's the? I, I have a counterpoint or a counter question. What's mm-hmm. the best football TV show? Friday Night Lights. Co- it's Coach. It's Coach. Hands down. Correct. Game day. College game day. The correct answer is Playmakers. I haven't seen it, so ugh, sounds awful. I liked Playmakers. My only issue with Playmakers was that literally anything that could ever happen to a football team happened to that team in the span of a season. It was amazing. Oh, are you not a fan of Missouri sports? Or have you not been watching Missouri sports? All the all the bad things happen to us, okay? And and you know what? ESPN lost playmakers just like Missouri basketball lost a playmaker. Oh. Uh, forced like the Missouri Arkansas rivalry. <laughs> Guess we gotta talk about it. We gotta talk about yeah, it. You, you brought it you brought us there, man. I need a couple minutes to recuperate from that terrible segue. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you hit me with a couple air horns to help my recuperation? <laughs> yeah, that's the stuff. Do you have a sad air horn for which talking we can talk? Earlier this year, or earlier this year, well, maybe earlier this year, uh, earlier this week, it was announced that Michael Porter Jr. is going to miss significant time due to a microdiscectomy surgery on his back. Um, the timetable is something like three or four months. And of course that prompted a lot of gnashing and wailing of teeth. I don't know the right, correct phrase there. Rending of garments. Rending of garments from Missouri fans. I mean, I can't take anything away from the people who are upset. This is absolutely frustrating and devastating for a team or for fan base that was really high on a kid, you know, number one recruit in basketball coming, playing for the university kind of, um, 
sticking home, staying home and leading the rebuild or potentially leading the rebuild of Missouri basketball. Everyone says Missouri is cursed. What did they do? Missouri's not cursed. What did they do? What happened? What, what happened in their history that Missouri sports are cursed? Here's what Missouri did to deserve this curse. Missouri has a very good journalism school, which produces a lot of nationally prominent <laughs> sports journalists who wail about Missouri being cursed every time anything happens to Missouri. And so that's why Missouri deserved this curse. The Pat Forty. <laughs> that is the correct answer, David. <laughs> the Pat Forty effect. Yeah, the Pat Forty effect. Seriously, though, I don't see. I mean, like, I see how. I read. I read Vice's column and I read Danny Jones's column, and I feel like the that's the correct way to look at this. Um, it's a very unfortunate thing that has happened. I feel. Well, it, first off, I feel worse for Michael Porter Jr. I don't feel worse for. Yeah. Joe Mizzou 57 on Twitter. Um, I feel worse for Michael Porter Jr. And then I feel bad for fans from out of town who bought season tickets hoping they were going to see Michael Porter Jr. and now can't. Um, that's kind of bad. But then if you're saying that Mizzou's cursed, then you're also s- somehow including in the curse the fact that Michael Porter Sr. and the entire Porter family had a prior connection to Mizzou that made Michael Porter Jr. falling into their laps after Lorenzo Romar's firing this offseason very easy to do. And then the whole chain reaction after that, that brought in a top five recruiting class with Michael Porter Jr. So, I mean, is that all part of the curse or is that a blessing? Or I just don't, I don't see how you can have those two things exist in the same world and be like, oh, Missouri's cursed because like, to get to the point where Michael Porter Jr. is out for the year, he had to recruit the class that is turning this team around. So how is that a curse, I ask you? They're not, Missouri's not cursed. Bad things happen to most college college programs except Alabama football. Uh, <laughs> like, but uh, maybe like Carolina basketball. But pretty much everybody else has bad things happen to them. Uh, Missouri just seems to have a knack of having the – absolute most painful things that happen happen right at the peak of expectations. Like in 1990, you go toe to toe with the number one team in the country and they get a fifth down at the goal line. Like how, like how does that happen? You know, you win, you win eight games in basketball, you come back, you get the number one recruit in the country. This is amazing. How does it happen? He has to have back surgery. Like it's just this incredible way of overachieving in the most painful way possible. It's not a curse. It's just a very strange little, uh, knack that Missouri seems to have. It's like that short story, The Monkey Paw, you know, where like uh, you make the wishes and you get what you want, but there's a catch. Like, oh, I wish I could see my dead wife again. Oh, no, but she's a zombie, you know, like things like that. (laughs) You beat Kansas in the biggest football game in both teams' programs' history, but they get the BCS game? What? (laughs) Yeah, I I think pretty much if you want to be cursed – you're you're gonna believe that you're cursed. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just people want to live in this kind of like this li- live in pity and sorrow and just oh woe was me, what was our team? Oh, everything is awful. But they're not actually looking as what you know David mentioned. Basketball is going in the right direction. If you want yeah. to say at any time yeah. Zoo was cursed, it was the past three <laughs> years. And I would have, and I don't believe in curses. But if Kim Anderson would have gotten an extension for a fourth year, I'd have been yep, I'm sold. Fifth down, Kim Anderson, four years. Yes, cursed. No, there, there, there's there's no curse. This this program is moving in the right direction, 100% with Consul Martin and the recruits that he's going to bring in. I don't know what kind of success he's going to have, but he's going to make them uh, a player in college basketball again, which they 
which we would not have believed that, uh, you know, a little over a year ago that that was even possible. But um, and Michael Porter Jr., as Morrison mentioned, had a lot to do with that. He helped recruit. He helped build the buzz. And uh, John Tay, his brother, it's going to be pretty damn good. Yeah. So you accept the uh, there's a there's a phrase that you accept the love that you think you deserve. And I think Missouri fans are kind of embody that with you accept the narrative that you think you deserve. Right. Like they think that they are cursed because they were cheated out of, you know, they were cheated out of a fifth win. They were cheated out of a, a win over Nebraska, uh, you know, the the UCLA game or, or even, you know, the 1960 uh, game against Kansas where they used a, the ineligible player. Like these are all examples of teams literally cheating to win. But somehow that's Missouri's fault, right? Like that's somehow something that Missouri did, or you know, in the past that make, means that they deserve this and to that i reply how many sacrifices does athletics need to overcome that because for curses to be broken you to sacrifice something well missouri sacrificed tony van zant dorio green beckham and now michael porter jr you know three local kids you know that were number one recruits uh, and who have missed significant time or have been you know dismissed from the team if you're even going to talk about having this as a you know missouri has a curse what does it take to overcome to 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 beat that? Right. I don't think it's not you're not being honest when you talk about that. Are you talking about a cursed turnaround? <laughs> is, that, is that what you're talking about? Sounds like we need to set some stuff <laughs> on fire in the trash can. I've seen Dorial lumped in with Tony Van Zant and Michael Porter Jr. I don't think that's a false equivalency because yeah, I agree. Tony Van Zant and Michael Porter Jr. did nothing to deserve not sure. having their Mizzou career come out as they expected it to. Uh, depends who you ask. Well. <laughs> Hashtag karma, as some fans would say. But Doriel got arrested multiple times and then didn't get arrested for a thing he should have been arrested for, which was finally the, you know, the final straw. And so, I mean, I don't think... I've seen people, including him, in the gnashing of the teeth, and I feel like they need to quit it. <laughs> Now that we've got that out of the way, because I, I agree, I don't I don't believe in curses, and I think that there's a certain amount of closure that we have to grant ourselves as fans or as people watching this team to say, you know, Missouri is moving on, right? The, the basketball team, they've bounced back a little bit. They had a rough stretch there where they almost dropped a game to D2 Emporia State, but the team has bounced back. They've had some impressive wins over Long Beach State and then against St. John's. And now they're going to play, uh, you know, West Virginia on on Sunday, and the team has found a new identity, or maybe found their original identity. I think in these wins, where uh, I know you guys have been watching, they've been playing better, they've been shooting better. Jonte's been playing, you know, pretty high level basketball. Um, the guards are finally kind of doing the thing that they, we've been at, expecting them to do. Terrence Phillips is having, you know, leading. Uh, David, I know you were talking about how he's been kind of. Uh, showing improvement on the court so can we move on can we agree that this this basketball team is still one that we should watch and enjoy absolutely and i I do think that uh it is uh i I don't know how to phrase this the right way but it's good that porter is having surgery and is and is out for the year and that it lets the team move on this is the team uh this is what they can focus on these are the guys and it's time to make this work on the court um, where some kind of situation where it was like, oh, is he coming back next week? Oh, maybe he'll be back. Oh, the you know the half court was you know wasn't so great tonight, but you know in a in a couple of weeks Porter will be back and fix that. Like no, this is it. Make this work. 
Um, I think the start of making that work is stability at the point guard position. Uh, having Blake Harris emerge uh, will be huge for you know protecting the ball, which has been a major Achilles heel so far this season. Uh, the half court offense has been uh, you know really up and down, very inconsistent. And, you know, because of that, they need to push and get more transition buckets. Uh, Blake Harris pushes the ball. He gets looks for himself uh, and for others uh, at the 10. So uh, emerging, you know, focusing on that part of the team, the, the development of the point guard play, I think is a, a big thing for this team right now. Yeah, the best version of this team has a more prototypical point guard at the point than Cassius Robertson. Um, I mean, yeah. it has Blake Harris or Terrence Phillips or even Jordan Geis too is a pass-first guy and can handle the ball. Uh, so you can get Robertson off the ball and have him running through sc- you know, back screens and getting open and things like that. So, I mean, the Blake Horace... Prog- Blake Horace? Who's Blake Horace? The Egyptian god of, of passing. <laughs> the Egyptian god of point guard and the... Anyway, um, Blake Harris <laughs> progressing would be the best case scenario, I think, just because I feel like he's got the highest ceiling of any of those point guards. Uh, But I mean, if his knee's acting up or if he's having portions of the season where he's getting a little too carefree with the ball and turning it over, I feel like Phillips can be a steadying influence there. I feel like Jordan Geist is always going to play tough for you at that spot. And I think that's the best lineup is um, one of those three at point, Robertson, at the off guard and then per year Barnett and probably Porter um, because Tillman's probably on the bench with foul trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like you said Robertson should not be playing point guard because I think that takes away from his sure. three point shooting. Yeah. I don't think there's any question that Blake Harris needs to be the point guard going forward, but we should also just remember he's going to have growing pains throughout this season. He's not going to have, he's going to have some bad games to where some fans are going to be like, Oh, we need to put Terrence Phillips in there. He needs to be starting. And I don't, that's not, no, that's not the case. Uh, this West Virginia game that's coming up, we need Blake Harris, and he needs to be sharp, or we're not going to win this game because of the the press Virginia. Press the, Virginia, yeah. They're going to be putting on us. Terrence Phillips is too sloppy with the ball. He's he's been sloppy his entire career so far. He just gets a little lazy, a little cute with the ball, likes to dribble too much. Geist, I love a lot of things Geist does, but he's not. He's a backup point guard. He shouldn't be playing that much, especially against the press. So we really need Blake Harris. Um, he, he does things that the others can't and he attacks the press he attacks zones he just attacks the defense which opens things up um, and, and he needs he just needs to get stronger too this team going forward is in really good shape they're going to be borderline 20 wins this year maybe i can also say starting lineups are overrated i don't care who starts i, I just care who plays the most minutes and actually contributes jante doesn't start but he's continually the best player on the court i think starting lineups matter more in the nba where you play like eight minutes with your starters and you move into a transition and then like a four or five minute stretch of a bench mob and then you finish and then same sure, thing in sure. the second half you finish with your starters for the last seven minutes um in the in college there's just so much substitution and and crazy lineup combinations that starting mm-hmm. lineups no don't matter as much. missouri has used 89 different lineups so far this year that's insane do we think that's going to decrease or that's just gonna be a concept thing i mean i'm sure he's just trying to figure out lineups right i mean it's already started to decrease i mean i keep i keep lineup stats after each game and this past game he used probably five or six fewer lineups than he had in all the other games this year so i think he's trying to and especially towards the end of the game you could see that he'd worked he kind of honed in on a six-man rotation he had geist purrier robertson um barnett and either porter or tillman and then after porter fouled out it was tillman and you know so i mean i think 
I think he's kind of honing in on who he wants his guys to be at different points of the game and who he wants his guys to be in crunch time. So I think the the, the lineup mixing and matching will decrease as the season goes on as he gets a better idea of who the who his five are, then who his eight are, then who his possibly ten are. You know. Yeah. Whenever we talk about starting lineups, um, in my head, I, what I'm really talking about are starting minutes. You know, I'm not really talking about like who's the guy who literally takes the court i'm the guy who's the guy who gets the most minutes who's the guy who gets the second most minutes who's the guy comes in and in key stretches or runs or something like that that's that's how i always look at those remember colin van years was a starter to begin the year so right i think uh i think dan you were talking about uh continuing to grow on d i think there was a there was some talk about conzo martin making a significant uh defensive adjustment uh at least versus st john's uh, did you guys catch that where he moved to a zone and that uh, really kind of threw them for a, a loop? And that and that's notable because uh, the kind of the hallmark of Gene Keady, uh Conzo Martin teams was the man to man defense. Yeah, it was a nice play. Uh, you know, they've been shooting lights out. Uh, they switched to the zone and shot one for seven uh, from three point or from three point range uh, after Missouri switched the zone. It does kind of seem like, I mean the. A good way to beat a zone is to just shoot over the top of it, and it didn't work. They just didn't make the shots. Um, it does seem like the kind of move that could also have easily backfired. Obviously, you would you would have scrapped it. You wouldn't have gone eight minutes with it or whatever. There is some, you know, after the fact thing, oh, it was a great move because it worked, you know. No, I do like to see, a, you know, a coach that, you know, especially one with a great defensive rotation, I mean, a, a reputation, like to mix it up defensively and, and try something different that does work. Uh, the team is leaps and bounds ahead of where they were last year defensively i think one of their issues were the in man-to-man they were having real problems locating shooters so they had to do some sort of zone to, to simplify things i think for uh for them to just like okay you're covering this area so don't let that guy shoot and you know get a hand in that guy's face over there as opposed to they were getting lost on screens and um and man-to-man they, they weren't really communicating as well and all these shooters were getting i don't hard. remember who commented on this but i think one of the other reasons why uh martin moved to that zone defense was to protect uh, Jeremiah Tillman who had three fouls at the point, but didn't pick up another foul for the rest of the St. John game. And deeper than that is that, you know, he's has got a bit of a reputation as a fouler. And there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of complaints about whether the refs are even calling, you know, like this is my big, one of my biggest problems with college basketball is the uh, subjectivity of foul calls and, you know, what refs will call when they will call it. Uh, that's that's a big frustration for me because I think Tillman, he does have a, a tendency to maybe get a little, he's a little excitable, uh, maybe he needs a little bit of uh, calming down sometimes, but uh, he's not as bad as he's, his, the perception of him is. It, you want to talk about the game, the part of his game that isn't polished, it, it's, but, but it's hard because you don't want to, he's, he has the high motor, which actually I think we heard. Right, you don't want to curb that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So that, that, that gets tricky and it's, he doesn't, he needs himself to learn when he needs to stop, when he needs to slow down and he doesn't know how to do that yet. But I don't know how much it, it's going to be a process with concept to teach him that because like I said, his, one of his biggest assets is that high motor and going all over the place, going for loose balls, getting those offensive rebounds and just being physical with the other guys. Which game was it where he threw the elbow? <laughs> that was long. They, they called the technical, then they took it back. I mean, 
he did throw an elbow. He didn't have to. Yeah. Like he, the guy flopped, but the problem was that wouldn't have happened if he didn't throw his elbow. It's just he didn't need to make contact, but he wanted to. I, I don't. I think he has a reputation for a reason so far. Yeah, I'm glad, and, I'm glad you brought that play up because that that play kind of encapsulated him in his career so far to me. It's like, yeah, the dude flopped, and yeah, they got the call right, um, and yeah, they probably called it on him in the first place because he's garnering a rep. But like, there is literally no reason you have to make like NBA Jam and like you know, throw your <laughs> Throw your elbows around after a rebound. So, I mean, yeah, maybe he should have learned to cool it a little bit with that. Um, but the like you were saying, Alec, the it's going to have to be a sweet spot of not him not losing his edge and being afraid to foul um, while still playing a little bit smarter and being able to stay on the court a little longer. That is why he needs to come back for his sophomore <laughs> season. Right and that is why Lock <laughs> needs to come back and play basketball. He'll learn, but that's something that could take a take a while with some guys. It's just kind of hard to adjust like that. It's just um. So then, my my question to you guys is: When we talked about Jeremiah Tillman after you know the first uh, maybe two games, uh, we were we were talking about how he looked a lot more polished than we thought he was. Uh, he was a lot more you know the a lot further along. Are we backtracking from that? No, or no, is no, 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 no. I think no. I think his offensive game is more possible. Okay. I think he is a more skilled and um, and deft offensive scorer than we had heard, uh, okay. specifically regarding like touch and foot moves. He's already flashed a really nice mm-hmm. drop step that's probably worth you know maybe like eight to ten buckets already this year. And um, it seemed that you know all the talk was oh he's raw, he's big, you know he's gonna crash the glass and dunk like but. I mean, this is a guy that you can feed. You can throw the ball into him. So that's, I think that's more what we were speaking yeah. about. So yeah. it's just more on the defensive end that he needs to yeah. kind of, okay. If he's earning his fouls playing, you know, tough physical defense, like, um, then I don't have too much of a problem with that. Like a lot of that is just a springy young guy, like fighting for ground. And, um, but when he's out there, you know, being whistled for dumb, cheapy fouls, that's where, uh, that's the ones that, he needs to clean up out of his game, but those are also the ones that referees can tend to hunt when you have a reputation as a fowler. I think we've covered everything we want to do. I just saw the news um, and it gives me an opportunity to kind of segue into what we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. Um, so I guess Chip Kelly's official uh, back to football, Chip Kelly's officially uh, going to UCLA. Uh, we already know that uh, Arkansas fired Brett Bielema and, uh, Mike Riley is out at Nebraska and though we're going to next week, um, next Sunday, we're going to be talking a little bit about the coaching carousel, you know, where we think we're going to go. What do we, what do we make of some of these moves, whether they do, do we kind of think they fit uh, stylistically or otherwise, or, you know, maybe just fun ones, like how much we would love to see Lane Kiffin go back to Tennessee. Um, We'll also be talking about, uh, uh, the bowl game because December 3rd is when Missouri will learn where they play uh, in their bowl game and who they'll play. Uh, So we'll talk about that and we'll return on uh, around Christmas Eve for, to talk about uh, the early recruiting period and the bragging rights game. And then we'll have one more episode, a new year's episode where we'll recap the Missouri's bowl game. Look for those in the next couple of weeks. Um, Thanks again, you guys for coming on listeners. You can always jump in our mentions on Twitter at zoology pod. You can follow us on our Facebook page. Um, we'd love it if you leave a review, a five-star review. I've been your host. I'm Oscar. You can find me on Twitter at Oscar Gambler. Over there, that's uh, been Dan Keegan. 
I'm on Twitter at Keegs.com. Uh, we've got uh, David Clicks Morrison. Yeah, and I'll figure out something contrarian to tweet in the next week to get everybody mad at me. I think maybe I'll do a heel turn and say that I've hated Albert Okwebenam this whole time. I think that'll <laughs> probably be my next one. Burn those bridges, baby. Yeah. And that's been Alec Bloom. Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter if you want, at Alec Bloom. That's A-L-E-C-B-L-O-M-E. Thanks for listening to Zoology, guys.